to God be all the glory for that. Anyone have your allergies kick in during that video just now? <laughs> that's the third time I watched it, man. It is, it's, that's powerful. And that's real. That actually happened. This isn't a fake story. I know Brandon and Kendra personally, and, and I've seen the change in them that God continues to make in them. They were lost, but now they are found. They were dead, but they've been made alive and transformed through Jesus. And they just, they're this awesome couple that just exudes joy and hope, even in the midst of difficulty. And so I don't know where you stand with Christ this morning, but I pray that you would have the same transformation. And if you are a follower of Christ, that, that God would restore that life and passion and joy in Jesus once again. So before we dig into the word, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and cry out to him for this. God, we do cry out that you would change hearts, transform minds, Lord, we need you to do something powerful in our midst. God, I pray that you would convict people of our sins and of our need of a Savior, that we would see the greatness, the depravity of our sin, but so much more the greatness of our Savior, that your grace trumps whatever we've thought, done, and said, all our spiritual mutiny and rebellion against you, your grace trumps that. If we just believe not in anything we do, not in any of our works, not in religion, not in being a good person, not in calling ourselves a Christian, but simply trusting that Jesus, as Parker said earlier, that you cry out, it is finished. The debt of sin is paid for. You absorbed the just wrath of the Father on the cross so that we do not have to, so that we experience nothing but your grace and mercy and love. And not only that, as if all that wasn't good enough, because that is good news, you made it even better. You sweetened the deal in the fact that, Jesus, you conquered the grave. You restore us to new life in you, now and forever. And so I just wonder, Lord, maybe there's some people here that today is their day of salvation. Now is the appointed time where you are going to breathe the dead to life. You're going to make new creations in you. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. We are new in you. In Jesus' holy and awesome name. Let the church say, amen. New year, new you. How many of you have heard that phrase before? Every January 1st, we hear the same mantra at New Year's. You know, new year, new you. Okay, and we, the, there's this transformation that we are so desperately seeking just never happens, that change never happens. We don't get the new year, new you. We get the same old, same old, reheated microwave leftover version of the old us. And no one likes microwave reheated food. It's just not as good. And, and so the change that we are seeking, the change that we are wanting just doesn't happen we get the same old, same old, and then enters stage left, the year 2020, and it comes with so much promise, and it comes just, you know, uh, 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 with so much uh, eagerness, and so I don't know if you remember January 1st, 2020, the clock strikes midnight, and everyone's like, yes, new year, new decade, it's going to be great, and then it wasn't, but here's the thing. The previous 12 months have done something pretty spectacular, something incredibly noteworthy, extremely powerful that no New Year's mantra could ever do. 
It has shown us how fragile we are and how broken our world is. The blinders have come off. We are seeing humanity for how it really is. The curtain has come down. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. I mean, look around us. This is not how things should be. Something is wrong. And you would be hard-pressed to find anyone who thinks, ah, humanity is just fine. We're not. Everyone knows that there is a problem, even if we disagree as to what it is and what we do about it, what the solution is. And today, we celebrate Easter. Now, technically, Christians, we celebrate Easter every second of every day. This is not just once every 365 days. We never stop celebrating this. I never tire of the Easter message. I mean, I still get emotional about thinking about the day that death died. Christians should never grow weary of hearing that Jesus rose from the grave to conquer death for us. And so maybe you are here and you're wondering, okay, but what does all this have to do with me? And why should I care about some guy who performed some seemingly great miracle some 2,000 years ago in some small country halfway across the world? Well, because perhaps through Jesus, what if through Jesus, it's not new year, new you, it's new life, new you. And that's the point this morning. If you look up at the screens, Jesus defeats death and gives us new life. Very simple point. And so turn to John chapter 11. The Gospel of John is the fourth book of the New Testament. If you have a copy of the scriptures, either in paper form or in glowing electronic form, either way, through your app, go for it, pull that out. If you don't have a Bible with you, no problem. We will put the scriptures on the screen. John chapter 11. And as you're turning there, Let me set the scenario for you a little bit. The place was Bethany, this little village, little hamlet, a mile or two outside of Jerusalem, essentially in the burbs of Jerusalem. And Jesus would often go there. In fact, it was kind of his spot. He, He would visit his dearest friends, Martha, Mary, and their brother, Lazarus. They loved Jesus, and Jesus loved this family. And so he would stay with them, kind of his favorite B and B, this quaint getaway from the hustle and bustle of busy ministry. He would stay there off and on throughout his three years in ministry. Well, Lazarus, the brother, gets sick, and not just sick, but deathly ill. And Jesus is not there. You know, if there's anything that has been heightened over the last 12 months, it's our cognizance of illness. And if you don't believe me, go to the store right after we're done, go out in public and just sneeze in public. Now you can do the vampire thing, you know, the vampire cough, cover your mouth, but you're gonna get this look. Like, okay, I don't think I have COVID. I'm pretty sure it's just pollen in the air. I mean, we are very aware of illnesses, but back then, illnesses could easily turn fatal. They were much worse, and so Martha and Mary send notice to Jesus that Lazarus is sick, and they're thinking, Jesus is, I mean, he's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He could easily and has healed many others. He could just speak a word, and Lazarus would be healed, so surely he will come. He loves Lazarus. He's going to come heal him. And things will be great. We'll be eating shawarma by sundown. But Jesus doesn't go. In fact, when he hears of his illness, 
he tells his disciples in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. In fact, underline that. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God, that's Jesus, may be glorified through it. So, Jesus and his disciples stay put for a couple extra days. And Lazarus dies. Wait, what? That can't be right. Jesus, you just said that this illness does not, would not lead to death, and now Lazarus died. What gives, Jesus? Death is the one inescapable aspect of life. And so many people, corporations, billionaires, scientists, have tried to prolong life, spend oodles of time, oodles of resources and money to avoid death, cheat death, or at least uh, delay death. But there's a reason that Benjamin Franklin said, nothing is as certain as what? Death and taxes. Now that's in a couple of weeks. That's a sermon for another time. Death is that grim adversary who terrifies us. None of us can defeat him. He's undefeated. Well, mostly. Everyone dies. But for those who have trusted in Jesus for salvation, whatever causes their death does not lead to death. Well, that sounds strange. That's counterintuitive. That's contradictory. That's paradoxical. How could our death not lead to death? Well, not ultimate death anyway. Jesus is giving a clue to a profound truth here. So Lazarus has been dead for four days. He's been in the grave, and Jesus finally arrives. And he arrives outside of Bethany, and many friends and family are there at Lazarus's wake, comforting Martha, consoling Mary. And as this is going on, Martha catches word that Jesus is, is arriving at Bethany, that he's on the outskirts of town. And so she drops everything, she leaves, she gets up, and she runs to go meet Jesus. And that's where we pick up our passage today in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, oh, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I don't know if you've ever been at the bedside of someone who's on their deathbed and you know they don't have long. They're in the last moments of their life. You can hear that gurgle in their throat and they just aren't there. You look at their eyes. They're gasping for their final breaths. As you see their life slowly slipping away as they just get tired. And then finally the EKG with the heartbeat goes silent and it flatlines. And in that moment, there are so many emotions. Grief sadness, despair, anger, frustration. And if you are a follower of Christ by faith and as was that person, then there's even a tinge of hope because you know that you will see them again. But in that moment, there are so many 
emotions. And whether this is rebuke from Martha, Jesus, where were you? Or whether this is regret, Jesus, why didn't we call you to come sooner? Martha is deeply grieving. She and Mary probably played this scenario in their mind over and over, as we often do after tragedy. Oh, why didn't we do this differently? Or why didn't this thing change? Or maybe if Lazarus just would have done this thing, he wouldn't have got sick. Perhaps they said this to one another. Jesus were here, our brother would not have died, which would explain why Mary says verbatim the exact same thing in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. Lord, if you had just fill in the blank, things would have been different. Things would be better. Anyone with eyes and ears, anyone with breath in their lungs can see and experience that life does not go as it should God, is this what you intended? How could you let disease and destruction and despair and depression and death and whatever else we've experienced in the last 12 months happen? How could you let all that happen? Because our world is broken, and our world is broken because we are broken. It is corrupt because we are corrupt. Years ago, in the early 1900s, the London Times newspaper put out this article, and the editor basically asked this question. He wanted submittals from anyone to answer this question, what is wrong with our world today? And so scholars, sociologists, philosophers, professors, all sent in these entries, these long responses, long essays, very articulate, and digging into the philosophies of their day. But the best response, the best reply, by far, bar none, was from a guy named G.K. Chesterton, author and theologian. And he simply replied this. This was his response. Dear sir, I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with our world? I am. What's wrong with our lives? What's wrong with our world? We are. Life does not look like it should because it's not as it was intended to be. God gave humanity the opportunity to live with him in perfect harmony, perfect intimacy, perfect paradise. But we, we rebelled against God. We said, thanks but no thanks. I don't want that. We rebelled against him. We rejected God as king. We tried to usurp his throne and be our own God, our own Lord, our own king. And creation committed spiritual mutiny against our creator. And so by rejecting the author of life, which is what the Bible calls sin, choosing someone or something over God, our creator, we chose death. And the corresponding consequences of death and of our sin, which is what we're experiencing, what we're seeing right now. We are often angry at God for the ramifications of our sin, but it's our sin that caused all creation to be shattered and twisted and broken from its intended design and purpose. And so Mar Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus responds, no doubt with a smile, not with shame, not with condemnation, not with judgmental hypocrisy, but he looks at her and replies with grace and kindness and simply says, your brother will rise again. 
Now, this could have been taken as a vague attempt at solace, some platitude, some comforting cliche that we often hear at memorial services and funerals. Oh, you'll see your loved one again someday. And we respond like Martha kind of did. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I know my brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, but Jesus, I, I know I will see him again later. It's just this, I miss him now. I'm hurting now. I'm struggling and grieving now. But Jesus here gives a glimmer of hope. Death will not have the last laugh. And that's just it, friends. Our sins introduced death and destruction, but God says, nope, not on my watch. It will not end like this. And so we get to the best part, one of the best passages in all of Scripture, verse 25, the crux of the passage. Check this out. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God that is coming into the world. I am the resurrection and the life. Not I will give life, not I will impart resurrection, not some future reality to be clung to later, not some past history, some past truth, but this is present tense. I am the resurrection and the life. What a powerful statement. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus made I am statements constantly, statements of identity and self-declosure. He would say, I am the light of the world. And then he healed a man who was born blind of his blindness. He said, I am the bread of life. And then he fed thousands, 5,000 men plus women and children with just a few fish and loaves. And now here he is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He's giving us a a hint, a, a glimpse into what he is about to do. I am the resurrection. Resurrection is restoration from death to life. And so it cannot be manufactured from a position of death. In other words, people who are destined to die cannot generate victory over death. You can't fight the grave with a foot in it. That makes no sense unless you are life, unless you are the essence of life, which Jesus is. And think about in the movies where someone falls into a pit of quicksand, right? Like one of the greatest movies ever, The Princess Bride. Come on now. Amen for The Princess Bride. Okay, no takers. All right. Princess Bride, such a great movie. You have Wesley and Princess Buttercup, and they're walking through the fire swamp, and here here they're talking, and Princess Buttercup just falls right into the quicksand pit and just goes right under And Wesley is thinking, oh my goodness, my beloved. And he grabs a branch and he dives headfirst, dives right into that quicksand pit. And as the viewer, you're watching going, oh my goodness, did they just die? What just happened? And a few seconds go by and you're waiting with bated breath, with eager anticipation as you're on the edge of your seat. And here comes our hero. Here comes the princess, Wesley and Buttercup. And they pull themselves up from the quicksand just as they gasp the breath. 
from the, the, the pit of death that tried to take their life. See, if someone is in the pit with you, they can't save you. You need someone who is outside the pit. It's almost like you need someone outside the pit to jump into the pit to pull you out. Only one who is outside the pit of death, only one who is outside the cold grasp of the grave, one who is the essence of life could overcome death, and he would have to jump in and be immersed in the frailty and weakness of humanity to pull us out, experiencing death, conquering death from the inside, and that's exactly what he did. Our God does not stand on the sidelines. He jumped into humanity, into life in our world to rescue us and free us from death through his death and resurrection. It's as Pastor Tim Keller says, resurrection is not the end It is the beginning of all things being restored. So Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is not simply stating that Martha should just believe in some generic life after death. He is declaring that he is it. He is hope. He is life after death. This is not some abstract, ethereal truth. There is no eternal life after death apart from Jesus. Jesus is life. And so many things in our world offer counterfeit life. Well, you got to look trim and fit. You got to work out and look this way. And you have to have this particular knowledge and know this. And you got to attain professions and uh, or possessions and these toys and have this. And you need to have success and popularity and climb the corporate ladder. And you got to do this, be this, look like this, act like this, all these things. But Jesus says, No, life is in me only. Nothing else will satisfy. He says, whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. This life that he gives is far greater than mere physical life. Oh, our world is broken and corrupt because we are broken and corrupt. And so the life that we need must make us whole, make us complete. We need to be made new. Our sins alienated us from our holy creator, but Jesus' death on the cross paid for our reconciliation with God, and since he is the resurrection and life, he restores us to life, to a new life, to a true life, that life is in him. Jesus says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This life in Jesus never ends. Even if we physically die, the life in Jesus never ends. Even death itself could not end our relationship with God. New life happens the moment you trust in Jesus. You know, throughout church history, in centuries past, there's been this saying that Christians have said, which is, already but not yet. Already we experience the truth and life of the kingdom of God, but not yet fully realized. Already we experience new life in Jesus, but not yet sinless life in Jesus without sin and the consequences of sin. So we have new life now, but perfect life one day. And this is important because we are so frail, so fragile, that if maintaining this new life were up to us, we'd lose it. It'd slip out of our grasp. But life in Jesus is by grace. It's this free gift that he bestows on those who trust in him. Not in what we do, but what, in what 
he did, not in religion, not in church attendance, not in being a good person, not in calling yourself a Christian, not in praying or reading the Bible or any of these things, but simply, those are all quicksand pits that offer falsely counterfeit life, but only in Jesus. Jesus is the author of a better life, a hope-filled life, a glorious life, an unending life in him. So yeah, life is now. Life is present, and life is in a person, and that person is Jesus. So Jesus asks Martha, do you believe this? He makes it personal. I think he's making it personal right now. He's asking you, us, the same question. Do you believe this? More than do you believe in life after death. You know 90% of our world 90% of the population believes in life after death. He's not asking if you believe in life after death. He's asking, do you believe that true life, both now and for eternity, happens only through faith in Jesus, in his death, his resurrection, in what he did, not in what we do? And I really believe that at this moment, Martha is having a crisis of faith. I believe at this moment, she believes and perhaps Lazarus was not the only one to receive true life that day. And so like Martha, you too could respond in faith, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah. You are the Savior of the world, the Son of God who came into the world to save the world. So we see in verses 28 through 37, I'm going to summarize it for you for sake of time, but Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, and the text says that he's deeply moved. He's filled with grief, and not just grief, but he's emotionally filled with anger. More than empathetically weeping with those who weep, which I do think Jesus does. He weeps with those who weep. He, he feels our pain, but more than that, I think Jesus is indignant at sin and unbelief and its consequences. You know, if you have someone in your family who's just kind of the black sheep person of your family, and they want nothing to do with God, and they're running from the Lord, and they are doing their own thing, living their own way. Maybe they're steeped in addictions or promiscuousness or whatever the case may be, things that you know will only lead to death and destruction. You get, you, you get righteous anger. It wells up in you. Righteous anger at, at this family member who you love, whose life is headed downhill. You are angry at the destruction in their life because you love them. How much more is a holy and righteous God who breathed life into us, outraged at death, that wretched consequence of sin, that great enemy that robs us of life. And so with tears in his eyes and resolve in his heart, Jesus marches to the grave to conquer it. Here comes our champion, ready to duke it out with death. And we see in verses 38 through 45, Jesus says, take away the stone. Roll away the stone from the tomb. And I love Martha's response. In fact, it's best in the King James Version. She says, but Lord, by this time he stinketh. He stinketh, death stinketh, metaphorically, literally, physically, but also, you know, uh, metaphorically, death stinketh. We hate death. We don't like death. Death stinketh. And, And Lazarus has been dead for four days. His body is literally decomposing at this point, way past the point of resuscitation. Hope had long disappointed. He's not just dead. He's dead, dead. 
And you can understand why Martha is upset. She's like, Lord, Jesus, do you, why? Why are you rolling away the stone from the tomb? Can't you see that you are ripping off the scab from our emotional wound? We are deeply grieving here. We are mourning. And if we open up the tomb, that smell of death, that, that death that stinketh is going to come out. It's just going to remind us of how frail we are. Death will be even more of a sad, sobering, scathing, shackling reality. But Jesus, again, looks at her with a smile and says, Did I not tell you if you just believe? Key word believe you would see the glory of God. So Jesus prays to the Father that Lazarus would come to life, to life, and Jesus shouts, I believe loudly, Lazarus, come forth. And he does. You know, some have speculated that the authority of Jesus is so great that had he not specified Lazarus specifically by name, all the tombs would have given up their dead to his resurrection life, to his power, which I don't know whether or not that's true or not. I I don't know, but I love the sentiment because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Now, think about this from the perspective of Lazarus. Here he is, he's been dead for four days, and he's on the stone slab in this cavernous tomb. And they roll away the stone from the tomb. And he hears these words from his Lord, from his Savior. Lazarus, come forth, as those words echo through the cave. Come forth, come forth, come forth, as the sound wave hits his ears. And as he's wrapped up like this, wrapped up like a mummy, in his grave clothes, in his bandages, he opens up his eyes. His heart begins to beat again. Slowly, (laughs) blood starts to flow through his veins. His lungs start to fill with air as he takes his first gasp from life after death. (gasps) His his, his flesh that was decomposing is being regenerated and restored, bandaged and bound by grave clothes, maybe disoriented. He wakes up in this cold tomb, and so he does the only thing he knows to do as he still covered in his grave clothes. He heads toward the light, toward the exit of the grave, walking toward the voice of the only one who commanded him to come to life again. And when we believe in Jesus, it's like we are awakened to life. For the first time, it's like we are born again. We see things clearly for how they really are. The things we used to live for that brought so much joy, the things that we just delighted in, the things that we woke up in the, in, in the morning and just, it's the first thing we thought of and the first thing we thought of before we go to bed, all these things that used to bring you joy that only lead to destruction just seems frivolous and monotonous. It's like your heart beats for the first time. You breathe in his life through his Holy Spirit and behold, he is making all things new. In Jesus, you experience true hope and contentment and peace and life. And so Jesus says, remove those grave clothes. Some of you are still living in the old self, the old you, the dead self that overpromises and infinitely underdelivers. Take off your grave clothes. 
Take off the stench of death, that life where you used to live for the world only to find destruction and dissatisfaction and death. Put on life in Christ through faith in him. And if you do so, you will be like in verse 45 where it says, many of those who saw what he did believed in him. And that's the point, church. Look at the screen. It's, It's this. Belief in Jesus is the key to life. Hope is here. Hope is here, friends. You know, not much later from this event, someone else would die a seemingly young, untimely death. Someone else would be buried in a tomb. Someone else would rise from the dead. Someone else would have the stone rolled away from their tomb. Someone else would breathe in life after death. Someone else would be wrapped in grave clothes, but he removed them and folded them and put them on his the stone slab in that tomb, which by the way, I, as a side note, love that. That proves that Jesus' body was not stolen by his disciples. Like if I want to steal your TV, if I break into your house, I'm not going to grab your TV and look at your bed and go, well, someone's got to make their bed. And tidy it up. No, it's a smash and grab job. Jesus rose from the dead, and so he removes his grave clothes. He folds them up nice and neat, puts them on a pile right on that stone slab in the middle of the tomb as if to say, I don't need those anymore. If someone else wants to use them, great. Consider them gently used. This weekend commemorates the greatest series of events in human history. The death and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God, hung on a cross to die in our place, to atone for our rebellious hearts, but not even death itself could hold him down. Death would be put to death. Death was arrested. Life had conquered the grave. Death could no longer threaten us, no longer intimidate us. It no longer holds us in shackled bondage. Jesus broke those chains. And yes, Jesus did indeed die and in his death, he takes our sin, and we, we get his perfect righteousness by faith. Yes, he did indeed rise from the dead, but unlike Lazarus, he never died again. Death is a defeated foe, friends. Death is a conquered enemy. There is life in Jesus because he is resurrection and life. So how about you? Do you have new life in Jesus, both now and forever? Trust in him and you will.